Welcome, you've arrived at Rockademia U, where the garage ends, Beethoven rolls over, and the ivory tower meets the street. And today, in part two of Dylan Goes South of the Border, we'll start with a little detour from the border to Sydney, Australia in late April of 1966, where our High Plains Drifter is going to rectify an omission from our first episode. To briefly explain, in part one, shortly before we went on our expedition into that wild unknown country where you cannot go wrong, at least according to the speaker in ISIS, I cited painters Frida Kahlo and her mentor and lover, Diego Rivera, as Mexican counterexamples to Trump's racist and xenophobic denigration of our southern neighbors. However, there's yet a third painter I neglected to mention. Roberto will now correct uh, that oversight. This uh, story takes place in, uh, outside of Mexico City. Well, it begins in Mexico City and ends really in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. But uh, it's all about this, uh, it's all about this, this painter. Uh, uh, he's a quite old, older fellow. Uh, he comes from Juarez. Juarez is down across the Texas border, uh, some few feet. And uh, uh, he's, he's a painter. He's a very, very, very well-known painter in the area there. And we all call him Tom Thumb. And, and uh, when Tom Thumb was going through his blue period, this was one of the, the most important times of his whole life. And he just sells many, many paintings now taken from his blue period. And this is all about Tom Thumb in his early days. And so we, uh, anyway, this is uh, just like Tom Thumb's blues. So now we can add Tom Thumb to our list of Mexican luminaries. His blue period surely rivals that of Picasso's and Chess records in quality, if not fame. But now that that gaping blank has been filled in, let's jump ahead to Liverpool in mid-May of 1966 for a sampling of a tune that will put us right back at the right geographical region. So here our urban maverick has strayed into that bleak town of Juarez, the well-populated metropolis on the Rio Grande just south of El Paso, where currently El Presidente wants more wall while the Republican mayor, D. Margo, wants less, proclaiming that his city is, quote, not a lawless community, unquote, despite El Presidente's suggestion to the contrary. But as we've heard from our painter of words, the same could not be said of the Juarez of the mid-60s. The town he's frozen in time is lawless and demoralizing, full of human vultures feeding on the lost and the weak, starting with the hungry women, which you can read in more than one way, 
who really make a mess out of you. In subsequent verses, we learn it's a town where the cops don't need you and expect the same, where authorities blackmail the sergeant of arms, where neither fortune or fame are to be what they claim, where doctors can't be trusted, where sweet Melinda, the goddess of gloom, steals your voice and leaves you howling at the moon, where the joke's on you if you think your friends will stand by you when the game gets rough, and where even a hell's angel is scared back to the coast. In all of this scourging of the soul in a Christian city during a rainy Easter time with its promise of redemption. It's no wonder that the last verse ends this way. I started out on Burgundy but soon hit the harder stuff Everybody said they'd stand behind me when the game got rough joke was on me there was nobody even there to bluff I'm going back to New York City I do believe I've had enough Now I jumped from Melbourne to Liverpool because the latter version was the first live record Columbia released of Dylan and the Hawks also known as the band when I first heard it, I was in a beer hall in the summer of 66 at Excelsior Amusement Park in Minnetonka, Minnesota, where I ducked in just to get some ride tickets from my old man, only to hear this familiar but barely recognizable tune echoing from a jukebox in the corner. Having already seen Dylan with the Hawks in the fall of 65, the first concert I'd ever attended, and at a cost of $2.50, I was somewhat wise to how Dylan Live is so radically different from Dylan on record, as I hope you just heard. But I was still in grade school and the show was so fleeting that the selectifying Liverpool performance was revelatory. Once I was done with the rides, the Cracker Jacks, and the Orangeade, my mission when I got back home to Minneapolis was clear, track down that track, which I discovered was the B-side of the 45 of I Want You. And just to reinforce the point about Dylan Live, here's a verse from the great version I witnessed at the Park West around Halloween in 1999 when our singing cowboy had his Bob Dylan mask on. Could it be that El Presidente had this depiction in mind when he announced his candidacy by proclaiming that Mexico's not sending its best people across the border? Guess time will tell who has fell and who's been left behind. But before we leave the classic album that Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues was part of, Highway 61 Revisited, let's circle back to La Bamba. If you're a regular listener to these podcasts, you might be wondering why I use that Richie Valens tune instead of Like a Rolling Stone. Well, for one, La Bamba is actually an adaptation of a Mexican folk song. For another, 
Though Richie Valens, whose real name was Valenzuela, was born in Pacoma, part of the San Fernando Valley region of L.A., he's considered one of the forefathers of Chicano rock and exemplifies the cross-pollinization that occurs when borders actually get crossed. Valens was all of 18 and on the way up when he went down in a Beechcraft Bonanza that crashed in an Iowa cornfield on the wintry February 3, 1959 also taking the lives of Buddy Holly, Big Bopper, and the pilot. But even beyond that is the musical connection between Valens' tune and Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. Specifically, we're talking about this La Bamba chord progression. Now this chord progression has been used so widely it would warrant a whole podcast just by itself. But suffice it to say here that in a 1969 Rolling Stone interview, Teen Tycoon and Wall of Sound producer Phil Spector, now behind prison walls on a murder rap, said this, quote, Like a Rolling Stone may not be the greatest thing Dylan ever wrote, but I can see why he gets the most satisfaction out of it, because rewriting La Bamba chord changes is always a lot of fun, and any time you can make a number one record and rewrite those kind of changes, it is very satisfying. Unquote. So what's he talking about? Let's listen. Hence, in a way, I was using a variant of Like a Rolling Stone. But now back to the border. Just about the time President Nixon was in the process of being impeached, Dylan did the soundtrack to Sam Peckinpah's 1973 film, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, also appearing briefly in the film as an elusive character, Alias, who walks around idly in a top hat, flashes cryptic smiles or a thumbs up, and mumbles something or other now and then, if my memory serves me well. The plot centers on the hired lawman Pat Garrett's attempt to bring down his old buddy Billy the Kid at the behest of some New Mexico ranchers. Now in this era of civil and racial unrest, of Black Panthers, the American Indian Movement, riots in the street, bra burners, war protesters, the weathermen, and you name it, the anti-hero was very much on the rise. Films like The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, and Five Easy Pieces come to mind along with westerns like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Peckinpah's classic Vietnam War allegory in 1969, The Wild Bunch. These movies being the antithesis to the jingoistic stereotypes of typical John Wayne and TV westerns from a passing era. In literature, the anti-hero is a protagonist who typically lacks the traditional traits and qualities of a hero, such as trustworthiness, courage, and honesty. They're unorthodox and usually scoff at or flaunt laws or act in ways contrary to societal norms. Sound like anyone you know? Dylan probably came to mind. But what about Trump? Sad. At any rate, keep the spirit of the times in mind as you listen to Alias. There's guns across the river 
Now, in the westerns of the black and white era, you rooted for the cowboys in white hats who wore the silver star. The Hobbelong Cassidys, the Roy Rogers, the Wyatt Earps, the Riflemen, the Matt Dillons, no relation to Bob, who'd run any lawbreakers out of Dodge. But in this tune, Billy Three, our balladeer takes the side of the outlaw. Now, the real Billy the Kid was a cattle rustler, horse thief, and gunslinger who notched at least eight killings on his belt before he was shot and killed himself at 21 in 1881 at Fort Sumner, New Mexico, where he's still buried. But here, the black hats belong to the lawmen and bounty hunters on his trail, trying to put him in Boot Hill, not because of his criminality, but because they don't like him to be so free, like camping out all night on the veranda, dealing cards till dawn in the hacienda, playing around with some sweet senorita. And to make him more sympathetic, he's far away from home. Now in another cut from the album, Billy Four, we get an extended version at a different tempo, though it retains a Spanish feel and also has no drums. Here's a sampling of the new verses. There's always another stranger sneaking glances some trigger-happy fool willing to take chances Some old whore from San Pedro to make advances Advances on your spirit and your soul The businessmen from Taos want you to go down So them higher Mr. Gant, the force you to slow down. Billy down and make your feel so low down. To be haunted by the man who was your friend. So hang on to your woman if you got one. Remember in El Paso once you shot one. Up in Santa Fe, you bought one 
走了。Gypsy queens will play your grand finale. So here we have more of the anti-hero figure, Billy the Outsider, loner and maverick on the run with his back against it. From trigger-happy fools and whores making advances on his spirit and his soul, to the betrayal by his friend Pat Garrett, who sold him out for a handsome payday courtesy of businessmen from Taos. No doubt the kind who drink up your blood like wine. Sure, he shot a woman in El Paso who may have been a whore, but she was a hot one. Which I guess makes the murder regrettable. Our empathy should be reserved for Billy, though, who's been running so long and is far away from home, which incidentally, in reality, was New York. Given the Juarez-like losers, cheaters, and six-gun users all around him, he'd have been better off going back to New York City like his lionizer did when he'd had enough. Now, if you think about it, a character like Billy was made to order for Dylan. Though earlier I said the 60s and 70s saw a rise in the anti-hero, the anti-hero itself was already something of a staple in pop culture when Dylan was growing up in Hibbing, Minnesota in the 40s and 50s. You had the leather-clad biker Marlon Brando in The Wild One, for example, and of course the brooding James Dean of Rebel Without a Cause in East of Eden, an actor whose look and manner Dylan tried to emulate. In literature, you had Jack Kerouac's Roman Clef novel On the Road, featuring many beat luminaries living loose and large in defiance of conformist codes. And to name another, you had J.D. Salinger's disillusioned and phony-hating Holden Caulfield of Catcher in the Rye. This novel, incidentally, was cited by Mark Chapman as inspiring his assassination of John Lennon and was also in the possession of President Ronald Reagan's would-be assassin, John Hinckley. It remains banned in some school libraries. However, I'm happy to report that you can see Dylan's own well-worn copy of it, plus a scrolling replica of On the Road at the American Writers Museum in Chicago, which is just blocks away from Millennium Park, Grant Park, and the Art Institute. You can also see the Newport Strat Dylan used to change music history with, plus other memorabilia from that pivotal time period. The exhibit has been extended through the fall due to popular demand. But to get back to the soundtrack, here's a mashup of other tunes. The cantina theme, the bunkhouse theme, the river theme, and turkey chase respectively. I leave it to you to decide which brings you closest to south of the border.
And here's a snippet from one more tune, which might not sound south of the border, but was transcendent for many of us lucky enough to hear it first on the big screen in the context of the film. Mama, take this badge off of me I can't use it anymore It's getting dark, too dark to see I feel I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door And jump ahead about 25 years Trying to get to heaven before they close the door Though Dylan's alias role brought him no Academy Award nomination, and his soundtrack met with a lukewarm response from critics, I know I speak for many a Dylan fan who felt some relief that the album signaled a continuing emergence from the great country music scare ushered in by the tail end of John Wesley Harding in December of 67 and the release of Nashville Skyline in April of 69. Country being a nice place to visit, perhaps, but not to live. Who could have imagined that just ahead were the Before the Flood tour with the band, Blood on the Tracks, and Desire, not to mention the official release of the Basement Tapes, which were recorded in Woodstock, where hippie hordes gathered on August 15, 1969, for a celebration of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now, long before Dylan was a gleam in his mother's eye, another Jewish composer with a New York address, Brooklyn to be exact, Aaron Copeland took a stab at Billy the Kid, composing a suite of tunes for a ballet of that name that premiered in Chicago on October 16, 1938. Despite knowing nothing about the Old West, Copeland managed to create a suite that'll transport you to the prairie, frontier towns, gun battles, and starry western nights, mostly by drawing heavily from cowboy songs like Get Along Little Doggies, The Streets of Laredo, and The Dying Cowboy. Here's a mashup of Mexican Dance and Prairie, gun battle, and celebration after Billy's capture. Billy fought the law, and the law won. Now you might be thinking, New Mexico is north of the border, not south of it. And you're right, even though if you omit the new, you got Mexico. But more to the point, the border can be metaphorical too, as in crossing boundaries between white hat and black hat and Mexican music and American music, 
Which brings us to Tex-Mex, a style of music that occurs when you get a whole lot of intermingling going on. Here's a YouTube definition of the genre. The history of Tex-Mex music goes back a long ways to the first meetings of the American-European culture with the Mexican-Spanish. This happened originally in Texas for the most part, then spread all across the border. When the first American settlers came to Texas, they brought their musical traditions with them. The very earliest Texans to distinguish from Tejanos, or Texans of Mexican descent, brought with them the folk music and instruments of the southern and Appalachian states. Dance music was very integral to any and all functions that involved entertainment, and the violin or fiddle, along with the banjo and other stringed instruments, were used. Along with the vaquero or the ranch culture of the Mexicans of Texas, the Anglo-Texicans also borrowed from the musical traditions of the Mexicans. The effects can still be heard today in Western music, which incorporated much of the Spanish guitar sound, as well as the feel of the romantic ballads and corridos. The Mexican trios influenced the harmony and style as well of what went on to become Western music. For instance, we have English and Irish ballads, Redone, of course, and, and rewritten, but with a definite Spanish influence in the music. For example, the famous ballad, The Streets of Laredo, which harks back to a military ballad uh, uh, from across the pond. Today, even though they sometimes call it country and western, western music is more of a genre of nostalgia, harking back to the days of singing cowboys and western movies. Western music also became a feature in the film industry in the 1930s and 40s. Western music would peak in popularity due to the movie industry and would feature singing cowboys such as Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, and even now an incarnation of the Sons of the Pioneers is extant today. It is still popular in the rural West and it dances and cowboy poetry and cultural events in the rural West and the ranch country. Other musicians and singers influenced right up to today by the Mexican tradition include Willie Nelson with his incredible redneck Spanish guitar work, Marty Robbins, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, and of course the singing cowboys, Tex Ritter, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, and others all the way down to George Strait today. So, for example, take a song like this. On a night like this, I'm so glad you came around. Hold on to me so tight And heat up some coffee ground We got much to talk about And much to reminisce It sure is right On a night like this Now add some South of the Border Spice from Los Lobos off with the Mastin Anonymous soundtrack and you get this. Esta noche tú Estoy feliz que estás aquí Ven, abrázame No me sueltes Debes estar conmigo Yo tengo tanto que decir Porque eres mi amor No hay nada mejor Que esta noche Then there's this. 
Ramona, come closer, shut softly your watery eyes. The pangs of your sadness will pass as your senses will rise. For the flowers of the city, though breath like it, death like sometimes. And there's no use in trying to deal with the dying, though I cannot explain that in lines. Now, if you're thinking that's not remotely Tex-Mex, I'd thought the same myself years back. But I live in a blended hood with a healthy share of Mexicans. For my neighbor who owns an immaculate triplex and big old vintage cars he's always waxing, to a handful of men who sometimes hang out in the alley when the weather is warm, to the friendly old scavenger lady who collects our soda cans. And one weekend afternoon, I heard a Tex-Mex version of the song with a thumping bass, an accordion, and guitars echoing out of the screen window of a duplex across the street. I tried to track it down for this podcast, but maybe because it was in Spanish, to no avail. So... I'll just have to make do with this next best option from Dylan's show at the Park West of Chicago in 1999. And on this most quintessentially Tex-Mex tune from 2009's Together Through Life, Dylan doubles down on the sound, taking us right to a cantina on the border, aided and abetted by David Hidalgo of Los Lobos on accordion. Many south of the border, 
All they have is a dream of a better life north of it. Life free of poverty, violence, and misery, and full of opportunity. Same as countless others around the globe for a few hundred years now, who did manage to fulfill their dreams. But whereas we once had a president who said this, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now we have un presidente who whips up his devotees into stupefied chants like this. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall, 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 build that wall. Sad. Talk about devolution. But it prompts a question. How did the border get there anyway? <laughs> and for the answer to that, we turn to a quick history lesson from YouTube. It wasn't that long ago that the United States went to war with its neighboring country, Mexico. Wars in American history have not been popular among the American public, and the Mexican-American War was no exception. Years before war broke out between the two countries, Mexico had fought its own war of independence against the Spaniards. It was in 1812 that Mexico freed itself from its colonizers. At the time, the new country spanned from current-day northern Oregon to the modern-day country of Guatemala. Its northern territory was sparsely populated and because of this the government supported plans to welcome settlers from the United States in the hopes of furthering developing the region. It was through this program that the majority of the population in Texas became American. By the time of the Texas Revolution nearly 10,000 of the 14,000 people living in Texas were American settlers. The only condition that the Mexican government placed on its foreign population in Texas were that they pledge loyalty to Mexico, convert to Catholicism, and live on the land they purchased for at least 10 years. Mexico also didn't allow slavery in its country. This proved hard for the American settlers to follow because they were mostly Protestant, loyal to the United States, and pro-slavery. It wasn't long before Texas erupted in rebellion and fought a revolution of its own against the Mexican government. After Texas won its independence from Mexico, it tried to become part of the United States two times. However, the U.S. Congress rejected its application because many congressmen didn't want to antagonize the Mexican government. Additionally, some congressmen from the free northeastern states did not want to add another slave state to the country. In 1844, President James K. Polk was elected president and was an avid supporter of Manifest Destiny or the belief that God has meant for the United States to conquer the land from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific. Polk's eye was not just on Texas, but veered all the way to California. When Polk became president, Congress voted to annex Texas into the United States. It was in 1845 when the president sent troops under the command of General Zachary Taylor into an area between the Nueces River, which was the traditional southern border of the Mexican state of Texas, and the Rio Grande, which marks the current border between Texas and Mexico. At the same time, Polk sent John Slidell to Mexico to try and purchase California. However, both of these acts angered the Mexican government and because of this, Slidell was sent back to the U.S. 
Polk, who felt that the Mexican government mistreated Slidell, seized the opportunity and when he was told that on May 9, 1846, Mexican soldiers had fired upon American soldiers between the Rio Grande and the Nueces River, Polk stated that, We have tried every effort at reconciliation. The cup of forbearance had been exhausted even before the recent information from the frontier of the Del Norte. But now, Mexico has passed the boundary of the United States, has invaded our territory, and shed American blood upon the American soil. With this, Polk declared war on Mexico. However, Mexicans thought of this act slightly differently. They believed it was an act of banditry. Because, of course, the shots that were fired upon American soldiers were, in Mexico's eyes, still in Mexico, south of the traditional state Texas border, the Nueces River. In fact, a Mexican article, written just days after war was announced, in the paper El Tiempo, declared that the American government acted like a bandit who came upon a traveler. There were also several U.S. congressmen that declared the war an act unjustifiable. Senator Charles Sumner stated that, Certainly, Mexico might justly charge our citizens with disgraceful robbery, while, in seeking extension of slavery, our own citizens denied the great truths of American freedom. Or to give another analogy, Americans were the invited guests who never left, and ultimately claimed the house belonged to them anyway. And now, under Trump's thumb, they want to build the wall and bolt the doors, apparently believing good walls make good neighbors. But maybe they do better to heed the words of one of America's Mount Rushmore poets, Robert Frost, who said this in Mending Wall, which was published in 1914. Quote, Before I built the wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, unquote. Or if reading's not their thing, how about giving a listen to Woody Guthrie's Pastures of Plenty by one of his greatest devotees? I learned this from Woody. Peaches and prunes, I 
And I slept on the ground Beneath the light of your moon Every state in this union Us migrants has been And if that don't do the trick, how about a Dylan Baez duet from the Rolling Thunder Tour 75 of another Guthrie classic that aims to build bridges between cultures instead of walls, in the process helping to produce the melting pot that's the America of old, and we can only hope and vote the America to come. Crops are all in and the lettuce is rotting. The oranges are piled in their creosotons. Taking them back to that Mexican border. Pay all their money and wait back again. Goodbye to my one. Goodbye, Rosalina. Adios.
You've been listening to Dylan Goes South of the Border, Part 2, a production of my pet project, Rockademia U. Signing off, J.B. Pariah, All Wrongs Righted, All Rights Reserved, 2019.